I'm Ryan Coatney. A lot of folks around here have the habit of calling me Coat. So I want to say hello, First Baptist, and y'all welcome me too. Hey, First Baptist. Hey, Coat. You don't have to clap. Goodness gracious. Just say hi. You know, I like to connect with y'all. We're going to be in Romans chapter 14 today. I thought about wearing a tie this morning, but I was scared y'all wouldn't recognize me if I came up here in a tie. So, you know. So Romans chapter 14, we're going to be in verses 13 through 23. Romans 14, verses 13 through 23. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. These are the very words of God. Let us receive them as a blessing. So I want to frame what Paul is up to here with a memory that I have from the fourth grade. It's one of my favorite memories and one of my least favorite memories all bundled up into one. In fourth grade, I was on the quick recall team. Who knows what a quick recall team is? It's where they get the kids in a line and they're kind of sitting across from each other, two teams with a set of buzzers on one side and a set of buzzers on the other. They ask a question and whoever hits the buzzer first gets to answer it. And whoever gets the most right answers, whichever team gets the most right answers wins. Well, we had a quick recall tournament at my elementary school and we were in the final round. It was Mercer County Elementary against Woodlawn Elementary. And Woodlawn Elementary had this reputation for being the smartest kid in the region. And we just really, really wanted to win this match. And so, man, I had the best 
match of my life. I was raining right answers like Steph Curry at the three-point line. I mean, it was amazing. That's a story, by the way, of how I peaked out in the fourth grade. Never gotten better than that. That's just kind of where it ended in terms of my personal development. But we kept on with this match. And at the very end, check this out, we were one point behind. And there were about seven to ten seconds left in the match. And they asked the question, and I was the first one on the buzzer. But the crowd was yelling so loud because it was at our school. And believe it or not, they were cheering for the academic team. Can you believe that? That the, the lady in charge decided not to call on me until the crowd was quiet. And the time, seven seconds, ran out without her calling on me to give the answer. Now, what the role she was playing in that moment is that of, check this out, what, judge. She was playing the role of judge. She had, she had legitimate authority to act as judge in that moment. And we can say for sure that she was playing the role of judge because she was adjudicating she was adjudicating the results or the outcomes of this event, right? She was determining what would be the final outcome of this event. That, that is the work of adjudication. It's the work of judging, right? And what's happening here in this passage is that Paul is trying to delineate what it means to judge rightly, Versus what it means to judge wrongly. He's trying to draw boundaries around what we as Christians can rightly judge so that we don't step outside of those boundaries and begin to judge things that we shouldn't and fail to judge the things that we should judge. Because so many Christians are really good at judging outside the lines that Paul's going to draw here, but really bad at judging inside the lines that Paul is going to draw here. We're really, really good at looking through a telescope in order to judge others. But we struggle to look into a mirror in order to judge ourselves. And so our adjudication falls outside the boundaries of what God has called us to. And when that happens, we become unhealthy and the church fails to live as a unified body of Jesus Christ, knitted together by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, what Paul's been up to so far in Romans, all the way up until this point, is he's, he's talking to this church that has a strong mix of Gentile Christians, in other words, people who are not from a Jewish background, who have converted to faith in Jesus Christ out of whatever pagan religion they happen to have been part of before. We've got a strong contingency of these Gentile Christians. Most of us, Gentile Christians, right? We're from the nations. We're not biological Jewish people. But then it also had a strong contingency of Jewish Christians. People who for their entire lives had clung fastidiously to the law of God in hopes of pleasing him through their obedience. 
And so we have these two backgrounds, both of whom have now been joined by casting aside that prior belief system and clinging to the hope that's found only in Jesus Christ. Clinging to the core teaching of Christianity, which is that, look, the only way we can be made right with God is through faith in Jesus Christ. And there is no number of good deeds that we can pile up high enough for us to stand on top of and command God to accept it. We cannot do that. And that's the central teaching of the Bible. That Jesus Christ has come and made a way for us to get to God in spite of our inability to please Him. Through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because He has taken on the death that we deserve. He has taken our sin to the grave. And Jesus rose victorious out of that grave, but He left our sin there. Jesus and our sin died But only our sins stay dead. Praise God, right? And so Paul is trying to help the Roman church rejoice in this teaching, but also, watch this word, adjudicate, adjudicate what this means for the kind of obedience that God requires from us who are justified or made right with him by faith and not the law. And it's easy, it's confusing, isn't it? I mean, the Bible's got rules in it, right? Well, we ought, to, we ought to obey them if it does. But how do we know when to follow a certain path versus following another? When do we know when to keep to our rules rather than rejoicing in our liberties? Right? And what are liberties? Well, liberties are the expression of the things that Jesus Christ has made clean through our choices. In other words, if Jesus Christ has made all things clean, then a liberty is enjoying that thing, even though our background tells us that we shouldn't. That's a liberty. And so Paul's going to talk about how to deal with this. Let's, let's dig into this thing. Y'all ready to dig in? And when I've got a Bible, I want to get into it. We're going to be 13 through 23. So let's start in verses 14 and 15. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of the brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Now, Right up before this, in chapter 14, beginning of chapter 14, Paul's going to paint this picture of weak Christians versus strong Christians, okay? He's going to say that the weak Christians are those who are freaking out about any kind of departure from the rules that they grew up with. So we've got all these rules they grew up with. Don't eat this. Don't drink this. Don't do this on certain days. Don't do this on other days. Be very, very careful about what you do, what you eat, what you drink. You've got to watch it. Keep to the rules. He says they're weak Christians because they're all caught up in these rules. Then he's got the strong Christians over here. And the strong Christians, they're really emphasizing what Jesus has done for them. And man, they're really really enjoying and rejoicing in the liberties that Jesus Christ has purchased them by his blood. He's made all things clean. All right. I like clean things. Let's eat them. Let's drink them. 
So we've got these two kinds of Christians, the weak Christians over here who are very worried about breaking a rule, and the strong Christians over here who are very excited about enjoying their liberties, right? And so Paul is now going to try to help them understand how they can live together in unity as a church. Now, he's going he's gonna to use this word weak and strong. It's not like they really are like these are bad and these are good, but this is rhetorical weakness and strength. And by using these words, Paul's kind of, he's getting some benefits from his choice of words because if he calls these Christians, the Jewish Christians who are very excited about their their past, their heritage, and all the rules that they've learned to keep, if he calls them weak, what does he do? He undermines their pride. And he tells them subconsciously, your national pride does not help you gain the favor of God. But then by calling the Gentile Christians strong Christians, he further disrupts the pride of the Jewish Christians, but he also, he leads by complimenting the Jewish Christians. So in other words, he invites them in to listen by calling them strong. He says, hey, you guys are strong. Listen to how you strong believers are to act. And, and, and though it's true, of course, he's not making this up. It has advantages to talk this way. And he wants them to be in the right frame of mind as he teaches them. And he, he uses this phrase, no longer but rather. He says, no longer pass judgment. And you would think that, what's the opposite of passing judgment? But rather, what? Accept people, right? Or no longer pass judgment, but rather don't judge people. Like you, you would think that would be the, but he changes gears instead. So he says, no longer pass judgment, but instead, what does he say? Decide never to put a stumbling block in front of a brother. And this reminds me of the story of the Good Samaritan. Jesus makes a similar move. The people ask him the question, who is my neighbor? And Jesus doesn't answer that question at all. Instead, he decides to answer another question, which is how to be a neighbor. Right? They say, who is a neighbor? And Jesus says, go be a neighbor. And here, Paul says, don't judge. And instead, don't be a stumbling block. Right? And he's drawing attention to this contrast by the way that he decides to frame it. And he says, he puts it this way. And he uses a word play because this word for passing judgment in 13 and the word decide in 13, they're from the same root. They sound the same. And so we could, we could kind of put it like this. Don't judge. Don't judge others. But instead, adjudicate yourself. Don't judge others. But instead, adjudicate yourself. What's he doing? He's drawing the boundaries. He's showing us the place where we should be judging versus the place where we should not be judging. And he says, you need to get really good at judging with a mirror, and you need to forget about judging with a telescope. You need to get really good at judging yourself, and you need to forget about judging others. He says, adjudicate yourself. And he tells us exactly how to do that. He says, adjudicate never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know when I'm persuaded in the Lord, nothing. He knows, I know all this stuff. I know that Jesus made everything clean, he says. But then he tells us, look, if 
your brother, someone for whom Christ died, is grieved by what you eat, it is no longer walking in love to eat it. So in other words, the way that we're supposed to adjudicate ourselves is on the basis of love. In other words, Paul's calling us to love others more than we love our liberties. The strong are to love others more than they love their liberties. Then he goes into verses 16 through 19. And he's going to answer why. Check out what he says. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. In other words, what Paul's saying is that there's something more essential to your faith than food and drink. What is it? Well, he says it's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. In the Holy Spirit. In other words, look, it's not these little decisions that you make that determine whether or not you're really part of God's family. No. What's essential is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. What is the sign of all those who put their faith in Jesus Christ? We've become what? A new creation. Marked by the Holy Spirit of God. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. And it's this new creation flowing out of you. Righteousness, peace, and joy. It's God's work in you that's essential to the kingdom. If you want to find where the kingdom is, you just need to find where the Holy Spirit is. Not where people are making perfect decisions about what to eat and drink. And so in verse 18, he tells us that we have this motivation. We have this motivation for this. That whoever serves Christ in this way, in what way? Well, by the Holy Spirit life. By surrendering to the Holy Spirit, by yielding to the Holy Spirit, by obeying the Holy Spirit in our hearts. That's how we're acceptable to God. And this is a gift. It's a gift. And then he tells us exactly what to do. Do what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Again, we're going to decide what to do and what not to do on the basis of love. So that we can build up God's church. And now Paul's going to, he's going to really drive the point home. Verses 20 through 23. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. And again, Paul's scared to death they're going to think he doesn't know his theology. So he says again, I know everything is clean. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. Everything is clean. You're right. Yes, it is. But it is wrong to, for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It's good not to eat or drink or anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. 
Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. That's great. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And so look, Paul's, he's saying don't destroy your brother. That's the bottom line. Don't destroy your brother. Be thinking about the weaker brother. Be thinking about those who may stumble. Be thinking about those whose consciences are, are weighing on them. Hold them in mind. And he's already established, look, he's already told us earlier in the passage that, of course, of course, anything is sin if, while you're doing it, you believe it is sin. He's already established that. But now he's going to establish a second point. It's also sin for you to do something that makes your brother stumble. So there's two ways for you to take, an un, to take a clean thing and make it unclean for yourself. Right? Number one, you can do that by having doubts about whether or not it's okay and still doing it. So I have a friend from um, a different background who's very, very uh, conscientious about pork because because of their background, right? And and so if if this friend were to eat pork, even though this background causes this friend to think that that's wrong, and they're entertaining doubts, then that would that would be sin for this person in that moment because they're doing something without faith in Christ. They're doing something that they believe is wrong. And in doing that, they're sinning against God because they believe they're sinning against God and they're still doing it. Right? It's like if, if, I, if I tell my kids, hey, listen, don't go in the front yard today because there's going to be some work happening out there. But they, they think I said, don't go in the yard today. And thinking that I said that, they go into the backyard. They haven't broken my rule, right? But in their hearts, they have rebelled against what they thought I said. So what's Paul doing? He's saying, look, it's not, it's not the deed level sin that we need to be thinking about here. It's the heart level sin that we need to be thinking about because Jesus Christ has freed us from all these meticulous rules. Nobody's going to look at your checklist, friends. Nobody's going to look at your spiritual report card. In fact, I'm going to say this with as much clarity as I possibly can. God does not care about your spiritual report card. The only thing God is going to look at is your heart to find whether faith in Christ dwells there. To find whether the Holy Spirit has indeed made you a new creation. To find whether Christ has washed you clean of condemnation. To find whether you are holy Wholly saturated with faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what matters. And so Paul says, look, if you think it's sin and you're doing this, thinking you're rebelling against God, then of course you're committing a greater sin because you're doing something you think God disapproves of. Even if the rule book says it's okay. And then he adds to that and he says, and check this out. If, if you're doing something that you know is going to make someone else stumble? If you're loving your liberty more than you love your brother or sister in Christ, 
If you're prioritizing a bite of food over someone Jesus died for, of course that's sin. Because it's sin to value our own petty preferences over someone Jesus died for. Isn't that crystal clear? Man, the clarity that Paul preaches with is just unreal sometimes. And so he lays out this this very clear argument. Premise number one, premise number two, conclusion. Premise number one, liberty, the, the freedoms that Jesus has purchased for you, is precious. It is a beautiful and precious and valuable thing that Jesus has made all things clean. So you can have liberty to love God. And as St. Augustine said, love God and do as you please. As Waylon Jennings says, y'all have fun and do what you want to. Jesus Christ has made all things clean. And as you grow in love for God, you will also grow in your Christian liberty. It's just a fact. It's a spiritual law. It's beautiful, he says. That's premise number one. Liberty is beautiful, precious, valuable, immeasurable. Premise number two. If you flaunt your liberty before a brother or sister so as to make them stumble... You transform your liberty from a blessing to condemnation. Let that sink in. If you flaunt your liberty so as to make your brother or sister sin, you transform it from something good, something that's a treasure, something that's precious, into something that brings condemnation into your life. You condemn yourself. Conclusion. Conclusion. Check this out. Paul, I want to let Paul tell you, and then I'm going to summarize it. The faith that you have. This is the conclusion of the argument. The faith that you have. In other words, when he says the faith that you have, he's talking about the freedom that you have in Christ as a strong Christian. Remember, weak and strong. That freedom that you have Keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. In other words, it's a blessing to be a strong Christian and to have this freedom and to cherish these liberties. It's a blessing. It's a great thing. It's beautiful. It's valuable. It's immeasurable. But whoever has doubt is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith. Is sin. So, liberty is precious, but if you flaunt it, it goes from a blessing to a source of condemnation. So, the best thing you can do, Paul says, is to hold your cherished liberties as an intimate and gracious gift purchased for you by the blood of Christ and to practice the discipline of the secret. Don't let what is a blessing to you be counted as condemnation. And cherish, cherish the liberties that Jesus has purchased for you in Christ. 
but remember the brothers and sisters for whom Christ died. And hold your liberties as a precious and secret gift. And like a like a rare, a rare treat that Jesus Christ has provided for you through his blood. I'll tell you a story. There's a little restaurant in Louisville that has the best spinach and artichoke dip in the entire world. I can't remember the name of it, which drives me crazy because every once in a while I get the craving that spinach and artichoke dip, and I can't have it because I don't know where it's at. Drives me, drives me nuts. But I was broke when I was in seminary in Louisville there, and I had a friend come into town, and me and him and another buddy went and we ordered, we got some food, but we ordered an appetizer of the spinach and artichoke dip with the chips and everything. Listen, this was a rare treat. This, this was like a paycheck. You with me? This is not something that I could do frivolously. This is like once every quarter or something like that. Man, we sit down and start eating this stuff, and I would take my chip, and I would delicately, lightly brush my chip across the surface of the dip so as to get the smallest amount possible on that chip so that I could enjoy this wonderful, luxurious treat for as long as possible. Anybody with me? It's like my wife, when she goes to the ice cream shop, she doesn't use the spoon that they give you to eat with. She uses a sample spoon so that her ice cream will last and last and last and last and last. It's that. That's what I'm doing with this finished artichoke dip. I look over and my buddy has got his chip. Man, and you would think that he's holding a daggone shovel. Because he every single chip, he's plunging it. Into the spinach and artichoke dip. And he's bringing it out of the dip, piled about a foot high with that dip. So that every one of his bites is as much dip as about 20 of mine. Man, I was, I was just devastated. And think of it, this was 20 years ago. And I've never forgotten. Right? Why? Listen, because for me... This, this dip was, it was valuable and precious. It was something I could only have every once in a while. And I held it in great esteem and I loved it. But for him, man, it was just something to rip through. Just let me get it in my stomach as fast as I can. And here's what, here's what Paul's saying. Like, your liberties, the freedom that you have in Christ, the things that you know, Jesus, has made clean, you should treat them as that rare and precious gift. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. You, you enjoy this in faith. You enjoy it because you believe with your whole heart Jesus has made it clean. And you can find, you can find nothing in Scripture to contradict that. And you're, you're clear of conscience. You're free. You know that you're, you're enjoying the free gift of God. With faith and gratitude and thanksgiving. Enjoy it. But keep it as a secret between you and God. And don't allow it to become the thing that divides you from your brother or sister in Christ. There's a theme throughout Scripture that the strong have responsibility for the weak. And, and usually this is rhetorical language. And so Paul says, look, husbands, you have responsibility for your wives who are the owners of a weaker vessel. I don't know what that means. My wife could whip me sideways, y'all. And I, a whole bunch of y'all 
in the same boat. I don't know what it means. But Paul says you have responsibility as a husband. You have responsibility for this woman that God has given you. Parents, you have responsibility for children. And in the same way, those of us who know of the great gift of Christian liberty, we have a responsibility to steward that liberty in such a way that it is an expression of love for the weaker brothers and sisters in our midst. And so I want to I pray for us. And what I want to pray is, is this, that, that God, by the power of His Holy Spirit, by the clear teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and by the faithful exposition of the Holy Scriptures, would guard the unity of the church, that is, First Baptist Church, Billitzville. And can you join me with your whole heart in asking God to guard the, guard the unity of this church? Man, if you're among the weaker brothers, remember, this is rhetorical weakness. It's okay. It's okay to have a conscience that's weak at this time. It's okay. But can you commit? Can you commit to the practice of laying aside judgment of those who are stronger in their faith? Can you commit to, to turning that judgment inward so that you adjudicate your own decisions rather than the decisions of others? And those who are strong, can you commit to upholding the responsibility to protect, to care for, to shepherd those who are weak so that you make your personal decisions on the basis of what's good for them? And not just what's good for you. Can you make that commitment? Because if we can all make that commitment, if every single one of us will do that, this will be a unified church. And God will use you to build one another up. You'll, you'll, you'll grow in both strength and numbers. You'll see real, real progress as a church. Spiritual progress. And there is nothing Leader than to step into a room full of Christians who really love each other. And if your kids grow up, if your kids grow up weekly stepping into a room full of Christians who really love each other, they're never going to leave the faith. Now, where else are they going to find that? So I want to pray that God would safeguard the unity of this church. And I want to invite you to pray with me. And I also want to invite you that if you need if you need to repent of judging others, or if you need to repent of not considering your weaker brothers, would you would you repent today? Would you turn from that? Would you say to God, I'm truly sorry, would you please? Forgive me. You know what he's going to say? I'd be glad to. That's exactly why my son died. Forgiveness is yours. Let's pray. Father God, it is our deep delight. It is our immeasurable joy 
to be invited into the family of Christ through the gospel. And we cling to it. We hold to it. It's our hope that Jesus has died for us and that you love us because of what he's accomplished, not because of something that you're asking us to accomplish, that you're not asking us to follow enough rules to please you, but that Jesus Christ has already pleased you. If we can just trust him. God, it's our great pleasure to come to you on the basis of his righteousness and not our own. And I pray that you would build this church up in that truth, that central core doctrine of the Christian faith, that we are made righteous by faith. And that you would use it to safeguard the unity of this church. That the weak would have consideration for the strong and that the strong would have consideration for the weak, that the weak would no longer judge their brothers and sisters and that the strong would look into the mirror to adjudicate their own decisions on the basis of love, not on the basis of clinging to their liberty. Make this church a beacon of love and grace in Goodlesville and beyond for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ.